But we're in a series, in fact, third week in our series uh, that we've entitled Real Faith, Real Life, and learning how to connect our faith to the daily, um, not only mundane, but sometimes the crazy aspects uh, of our life. And last week we learned uh, about what it means to be a Christ follower, to re- live out a real vibrant faith when trials and tribulations come our way. And if you remember, as we opened up the first chapter of the book of James, we came to the realization, if we hadn't known it before, we sure know it now, that James makes it abundantly clear that as Christ followers, we are not exempt from hard times. We learned that this week. If you're following, and I would invite you if you're not, if you're following the prayer update on our Facebook page, um, you will have learned this week that just like every other week, there were trials. We had family members that were struggling with all manner of issues and tribulations. We had one of our own, Mike Fatu, uh, be diagnosed with lung cancer this week. And you can be praying for him as he has a PET scan tomorrow uh, to find out the extent of it. He wasn't expecting that as he was sitting with you and I on Sunday. You see, trials don't tell us when they're going to come knocking at our doors. And so we recognize and know that trials of many kinds, of all shapes and sizes, take place. They take place without us knowing, and many times we are ill-prepared for the trials that come. And last week, James tells us that if we want to have real faith for real life, we need to count it all joy knowing that God has a plan and purpose for the trials and tribulations we face. Now what James is going to do now, in verse 13 through 18, is he's going to flip that coin of trouble, okay, you call that coin trouble, in our lives, and on one side, last week we learned that those troubles, we can call them trials. But if we flip that coin, we're going to learn that those troubles can also be called temptations. We're going to learn, or we learned last week, that trials are things that hit us from the outside, and when we flip that coin to temptations, we learn of the troubles and trials that come from within us. And we're going to learn that as Christ followers, if we want to get very far in our Christian walk, we're going to have to learn, as James tells us, to begin to withstand and find victory against the temptations that come up from within us that can wreak havoc in our lives. But we have a hard time dealing with temptations. The story is told of a man who had started on a diet, wanted to lose some weight. And he knew that he had a struggle uh, with eating sweets. And he had a favorite bakery that he absolutely loved to uh, feast on its delicacies. And he knew that he had to go downtown one day. And he, he knew if he didn't get out in front of this, that he would find himself at the bakery. And so he did. He got serious. And he said, listen, God, you know I'm trying to lose weight. You know, Lord that I really, really like those cakes in that bakery and all of the fine delicacies, Lord. But I know you want to give me good things. So, Lord, here's my prayer. Lord, if you want me to stop at the bakery, then you will leave a parking space right out in front of the bakery, and I will know it is your will for my life to stop at the bakery. And wouldn't you know it? God hears and answers prayers. Because on the seventh time around the block, he found the parking space. Like that man, we at many times in our lives find ourselves falling to temptations, making excuses for the temptations that wreak havoc in our lives. And we blame God and we blame others instead of looking within. It's been said that I wouldn't be tempted if temptation wasn't so tempting. How true is that? Oscar Wilde, the playwright, remarked, I can resist anything except temptation. You see, we struggle as people with temptation. And here's the thing, we're not alone. The, The recipients of this letter in the first century in the Middle East had trouble with temptation as well. 
Like you and I, they struggled to keep the temptation of their desires at bay. And so James, because he loves, he's going to say, my beloved brothers, I love you guys. I care about you. I know what my half-older brother Jesus said, that we could find victory and abundance if we followed him and followed his ways. But I know, just as you know, guys, that temptations are hard. And James pens out and he says, listen, life is hard. There's going to be persecution and struggle that comes from the outside. But don't forget the enemy within. Because if we want to find victory in Jesus, it begins with how we deal with the hard stuff in life. And he says these words with regards to the temptations that come from within. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadows due to change." Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us, you and I, forth by the word of truth, that word that's in your hand this morning, that we should be a kind of first fruits, and we might be examples of his creatures. James shares these words. Let me ask for God's blessing. Father God, we come before you and ask your blessing on the word this morning, on the reading of it, the hearing of it the preaching of it, and the applying of it, Lord. This is a sermon, Lord, that addresses all of us, men and women, the young, the old, the rich, the poor, those that are living uh, a carefree life and those who are struggling every step of the way. All of us are involved in this. So, Lord, I pray that that application would address every heart and every mind this morning and that we might this week find victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen and amen. There's nothing worse when you're in a battle, when you're fighting against an enemy, only to learn that the person fighting next to you has made a decision without you knowing it that they are now fighting with the enemy and against you. Oh, they may wear the same uniform you're wearing, but they are doing everything in their power to fight against you without you knowing it. They have betrayed you. They have become a traitor. This happens in warfare. This happens in athletics when a a particular uh, player on a team is offered money to now throw the game. And we hear of stories from time to time on how a star player, for the sake of money, is willing to betray his coach, his players, the fans, the university, or the team he plays for, for the sake of some gain. We hear about it in the way of marriage. When betrayal takes place, when one spouse gives up on the commitment and covenant that they've made in love to the other spouse... And they betray that confidence, they betray that trust by becoming a traitor to the marriage and pursuing another with an affair. It happens in the business world. When an employee takes the secrets and the, and the uh, um, intellectual property of a certain company and divulges it to the competition for the sake of maybe a greater pay scale. We see this happen over and over again, and let me remind you that this happened in the life of Jesus. Jesus is living with his 12 disciples. He's teaching them. He's ministering to them in every way. And while he knew it, the other disciples didn't, that all along the way, Jesus knew that there was a traitor among them, Judas. Let me remind you again that the first sin was not in the Garden of Eden, but it was in heaven. When the great rebel Satan himself, Lucifer, the chief cherub of all angels, convinced a third of the angels to betray Jesus and in a treacherous and traitoring act, 
rebelled against the God of the universe and was thrown out of heaven. We see the acts of traitors over and over again. But as Americans, when we talk and use the phrase traitor, the name that comes to mind is none other than Benedict Arnold. A good-looking guy, right? Benedict Arnold was one of our rising stars in the U.S. Army during the Revolutionary War, trained at West Point, an alma mater that he had come to love. He would be one of the single-handed reasons why West Point would fall to the British. He would uh, go from being one who was rising in ranks to giving, allowing himself to be given to the loyalties of Great Britain. It started with first... Uh, starting to date a loyalist woman who was unfavorable uh, of what the colonies were doing. He would start to see his treachery grow when he would be uh, passed over for assignments and commendations when he thought he was deserving of them. And when he doesn't get put in the spotlight for a battle that is one that he had a part in, he makes a decision, instead of fighting for freedom, for the men that are alongside of me, unbeknownst to his partners, he makes a decision that he is going to sabotage the work of the Continental Army. Years later, when Washington was asked who was his greatest enemy... Who caused him the most consternation across enemy, enemy lines? George Washington said this. He said, with regards to it, I don't know which one is greater. The betrayal of one Benedict Arnold or all the armies of General Cornwallis. You see, Washington said, listen, the massive armies of the Redcoats, they pale in comparison to one of my friends turning. And what I want to remind you this morning is that within every one of us, there's a traitor. Within you, within me, there is one who seeks to sabotage your walk with Jesus Christ, and it seeks to because it is all about them and not about all of you, that your desires and your wants are willing to sabotage your life. Now you have a choice. You can either bring that traitor into custody and lock it away so that it cannot create peril and, and problems for you, or what many of us have done, we allow it to run free knowing that at some point it will get the best of us. Now as James articulates this, we need to interpret some things from the text because maybe in your English translation it makes sense, but I want you to understand how the English translation gets to where the original Greek translation was at. Interpreting this passage can be difficult because when James uses the word trials and temptations in our English language, those are two different words. But when James penned this first in the Greek language... He used one word for those two that we use. In verse 2 of chapter 1, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. One Greek word for trials. And in verse 13, when he says we are tempted, it's the same Greek word. Now, one is a noun. Verse 2 is a noun. Verse 13 is a verb. And because of that, it speaks about, first, the trials that come from the outside. When trials and tribulations hit you from the outside, and this week we had trials and tribulations come from the outside. But he turns that coin in verse 13 and he says, listen, when the trials and tribulations come from within, we call those things temptations. We call those things internal struggles. Now how can the same word mean two different things? How can a one word create two word pictures? Let me explain. An assailant uses a sharp knife to harm and maim and destroy its victim with that sharp knife, right? Well, with the same sharp knife, a surgeon can take and cut, just as was cut with the assailant, the surgeon cuts the flesh and opens up the flesh, not for the sake of hurting or destroying the patient, but helping it and bringing forth wholeness and healing. Same sharp knife, used in two different ways, can either destroy or it can build up. 
James last week said, God allows trials in our lives like the masterful surgeon who cuts at us. It hurts. We bleed. But we're cut for the sake that God can do spiritual surgery on our lives that when those trials come, we can consider it pure joy, my brothers, when trials of various kinds come. In verse 13, what we have is we have the devil and our flesh cutting at us for the sake to trip us up and to destroy our lives. One for our good, one that will bring harm and destruction. And so we've got to know what to do with this. So James gives us four truths about temptations. Here's my outline. He's going to tell us about the substance, the source, the steps, and the solution that we can find to temptation. We need to know where temptation comes from in order to overcome it. To put it another way, once we know the truth about temptations, they will not be so tempting. That's what we want to get to this morning. So let's look at the first one, the substance of temptation, verse 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Let's stop there. The substance, what is temptation? We have a hard time defining this. For some of us, we think temptation is sin. It isn't sin. And here's the reason why we know it's not sin. Because we know, and we call these syllogisms, by the way, okay? Two truths that then apply to an objective truth as a third. So first truth, Jesus was sinless, okay? That's a truth we know. Scripture tells us Jesus was sinless. Syllogism number two, Jesus was tempted, Okay? Therefore, if Jesus was sinless and Jesus was tempted, then the third uh, logical understanding is, is that to be tempted is not to sin. Does that make sense? Okay? That's using logic. We just use logic. The Bible says Jesus is sinless. Jesus was tempted. Therefore, temptation is not sin. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we know that to be tempted doesn't mean to sin. Now, a couple things about this. First of all, let's define it. Let's understand it. Okay? we got to understand what it is so that we can properly diagnose it and find the remedy for it. Temptation, write this down, is the act of enticement. It's the act of enticement to sin by promising pleasure or some other gain. First of all, understand it's an enticement. What I mean by that is temptation is attractive. Now, I'm not going to assume among 7 billion people that there aren't people that like this, but I don't know um, of a lot of people that like plates of maggots and garbage and that they're attracted to that. It's gross, right? Uh, it doesn't seem to bring any kind of pleasure or gain for me to eat garbage or, or, or that, and so very few people are attracted to it, okay? Um, nobody in the first service was. Maybe one of you guys are in the second service, okay? But I don't know of many people. Why? There's not much attractiveness to it. And yet, we need to understand that when we are tempted, there is something attractive to us, like a moth to the flame, something that elicits uh, or ignites the desire within us. And so we got to understand that it's not going to be by the ugly things, the, the, the crazy things, if you will, that we're attracted to. It's going to be things that, in essence, flip the switch of our desires. We'll get to that in a moment. Number two, we need to recognize that this enticement to sin is going to be used through the sense of luring. We're going to learn that luring is a fishing term. A fishing lure is a colorful and beautiful and, and well-made made, uh, and appearing to be just beautiful camouflage for a hook. And so what we're going to learn is, is that temptation in some ways is sin packaged in a beautiful way so that you don't see the hook, you don't see the strings attached, you don't see the consequences that will come. And so uh, it, has been, it has been shrouded 
with attractive stuff around it, but there's a hook behind it. And so we're going to be enticed. It's going to get things going within us. And then we're going to be lured. We're going to be trapped in the idea that that which is beautiful is only going to bring us pleasure or gain. It, man, it's Disney World. And little do we know we're entering into the gates of hell. And so what do we need to know about this? Let's, let's understand some truths about temptation. Number one, the first truth we need to understand about temptation is it should be expected. It should be expected. James says, just as he did with trials, and we already learned this about trials, so it's the same. He uses the phrase, notice, let no one say, and if you underline, underline that word, when. When. And if you take notes, write that James says, when, not if. It's not if temptations come, they're going to come. It's only a matter of time. We should expect them. We should be ready at all times because temptations come at all occasions, at all moments in life, whether we want them to or not. And we got to know our enemy can strike at any time without warning. So we got to build the walls in our lives to make sure that when they come, we're protected. Number two, we need to recognize that when it comes to temptations, none of us are exempt. None of us are exempt. The Bible is full of stories of not only people who struggled with temptation, but the vast majority of them fell to temptation. That's what I love about the scriptures. It's brutal honesty. It doesn't paint a picture that everybody is fine and with rose-colored glasses, um, the world just goes on and nobody makes mistakes. No, it gives a story upon story. Let me share something with you. Let's go all the way back, Adam and Eve. How about Noah, Abraham, Jacob? They all fell. Joseph was tempted, but he doesn't fall. So you'd think that would create a pattern. So we get to Moses. No, he was tempted and fell. Samson, he was tempted and fell. Saul, he was tempted and fell. David, he was tempted and fell twice. Solomon, he he was tempted. Even though he was wise, he fell to sin. Even Daniel was tempted. And what did Daniel do? Daniel stood the test. So you'd think a new time was coming. The prophets would come. They would be tempted and fall. Then we get to the New Testament, and we would see John the Baptist be tempted, but he would withstand it. And yet the disciples would be tempted, and they would fall. And then we're reminded of the most perfect of all, because none of them were 100% in in being tempted and not falling. But Jesus comes as the perfect Lamb, the Son of God, and we are told he was tempted in all manner of things, just like we are. And he did so without sin. And let's be reminded, he did so under the temptation of the devil himself. And so we need to understand this morning, and I want to help some of you, because the greatest lie you think is you're the only one who is being tempted. That's hogwash. The person sitting next to you, as cleaned up as they look, as Christian as they look, as mature as they look, I want you to know and I want you to just to mouth over to them, you have been tempted. Because they have. And remember that when you are pointing at them, there are, i got to make sure I'm doing this right, when you point at them, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Okay? And if any of us thinks that we are too holy, too righteous, too godly, that we can't be tempted. The Apostle Paul's words in the Scriptures tell us, therefore let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. We're not exempt. Notice next, the temptations are hard to explain. So you're sitting there and you know your temptation and at some point I'm hoping at the top of your outline in some sort of uh, hieroglyphics, okay, you don't want anybody seeing it, right? That you can write or put a mental note, here's my temptation, here's my struggle. And I know many of you, as I deal with my own temptations, would ask the question, where did they come from? When did they start? What did I do? And some of us find ourselves with all manner of temptations and we're like, where where did I catch that? 
Why do I like that? I mean, it makes no sense. And I'm here to tell you, this side of heaven, your temptations may not. Some might. Some might be easy to detect, but there's still others that are so in, in ground in our lives. Maybe they came as a result of something that happened early in our lives. A pattern of habitual sin that, that we allowed. Maybe we weren't even aware it was a sin. And it took root in our lives. And we, and we, we can't figure it out. Where did it come from? Why is it there? All we know is that we deal with it on an ongoing basis. And here's the thing. It isn't important to figure out exactly where it came from. The important thing is how you're going to deal with it. It's easy for us to make excuses. It's easy for us to make excuses. We live in a society that seeks to take every malady and label it. Now listen, there are good times to label things, right? There are good moments for our, our world of medicine and even in psychology to, to label things. But, but I gotta be honest with you, don't you think we label way too much? Don't we, we label, and one of the reasons why we label is we, in some ways, we want to condone. We want someone to give us a pass. You see, if, if I can call myself an addict, then, then I'm not culpable for my sin. The disease made me do it. And that's what I want. I, I don't want that heat on me. And so what I'm going to tell people, and we see that with all manner of things, everything is becoming an addiction. And I'm not disputing that there aren't addictions, if you will, in our lives. But if we make the, uh, the t- term addiction mean that I am no longer responsible, then listen, we are hurting that individual, not helping them. And we've got to be careful because in temptation, we'll say, well, listen, I'm just a sinner and that's what sinners do and I've got no responsibility, I can't help myself and so I'm just going to give in to it. And our world is filled with people that don't say no to temptation, that just give in. And sadly, there's Christians, your preacher included, who is quick to make excuses about his sin. And when we do that, we cause ourselves to be incapable of the victory God wants us to have. And God doesn't want that. And James teaches us, listen, you got to take the responsibility, the onus is on you. Notice they're tough to eliminate. I can't, I can't articulate this enough. I do not want to belittle the power of temptations. And many, for many of us, if we have given to temptation over and over again and we start trying to curb that temptation it will seem impossible to overcome the man or woman who continues to ingest drugs into their life their body will begin to know and understand i have to have this to survive and so the the person that's doing drugs and has depended on getting through life and getting through every moment with that high or with that substance leading the way, when you say no more to that thing, the body will start to convulse. The body will begin to contort. The body will begin to scream, give it to me. I will die without it. And some of us right now have given into temptation and you are saying, Tim, you want me to back away from that? You know what's going to go on? All hell is going to break loose in my life. And let me tell you something, it may. It may. Because you are so akin to having that thing to enjoying that pleasure, to pursuing that gain, that when you say no to it, it is going to wage almighty war upon you. And so you've got to be ready. And you've got to start building walls, and you've got to start making sure, because at some point, if you don't get a handle on it, if it hasn't already, it will cause your life to go off at the rails. And so we've got to get in front of this thing. And we've got to work through the... Uh, the uh, cravings of it, no matter how hard it is, it is tough for us to eliminate them. It's tough for us to eliminate. I didn't have that one down, by the way. You can write that down. I forgot that. I had a note. Hey, Tim, stop and tell him it's not in the outlines. It can be tough to eliminate. Write that down. It can be tough to eliminate. So what do we do? 
What do we do? We've got to notice the source of temptations. Notice he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so we've got to ask the question, okay, where does temptation come? And right away what we will do is we will seek to blame somebody. We will seek to tell somebody that it's their fault for our temptation because surely it's not mine. When my boys get into arguments with one another, mom or dad will come and say, hey, what's going on? And we'll inevitably ask this question, hey, who started it? And you know what happens? Boom. Okay? Fingers are going everywhere. Pointing, blaming takes place. Why? Because my boys aren't unique to this. Their mom and dad do it. They're part of a human race that does it. When heat is brought onto us, we want to deflect that heat to someone else. It's someone else's fault. And the first person we turn to in our temptations is we want to blame God, but we can't. We want to blame God. James says right away, listen, you cannot blame God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James uses two phrases to say, in essence, the same thing. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to know that's off limits. You can't blame God for this. It's not God's fault. Chuck Swindoll, author and pastor, put it this way. Don't even remotely suggest that God has anything to do with your temptation. His character makes this kind of conduct impossible. After losing everything, Job uh, records that in all this, Job did not sin by bringing charges against God for wrongdoing. You can't do it. But we do it all the time. God, you've surrounded me with dumb people. It's their fault. It's your fault. I did what I could. God, I've read you poured out your wrath on people, so why can't I? God, you gave me my spouse. God, you gave me my kids. God, you gave me this problem. Therefore, it's your issue, not mine. We'll see where God was blamed later on in the tech, or in, in the scriptures. But we can't do it. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about James possibly growing up with Jesus and starting a fight with his Jesus and then Mary comes into the room. This is all, of course, my speculation. But that Mary walks in the room and, and, and James right away says he started it to the sinless Messiah. Of which Mary would say, we both know that that's not true. Let me tell you something, you will never win when you put God on trial. So stop doing it. It's not God's fault. He does not tempt nor he can he be tempted himself. So notice the next thing that we do. We pass the buck. James says, okay, you can't blame God for your sin, so what does man do? Man says, okay, I'll blame others. Now, why would we think this? Because at some point in James's ministry to these people, they were blaming God and others for this. And listen, we do this all the time. With our lust, we say, Tim, you don't understand how pretty she is. You don't understand how provocative she dresses. Tim, you don't know how ruggedly handsome that guy is or how athletic or, or how smart he is. It's his fault. It's not mine. He talked to me. He said nice things about me. Therefore, I, I got to give in. How about sinful anger? Tim, you don't understand how mad my spouse or my kids make me. It's not my fault, it's theirs. How about lying? Tim, you don't understand the pressure I'm in at work. That if you don't start fudging some of the numbers, you'll never make it. How about Tim, you don't understand how easy life can be when you have money. Therefore, I'm going to give in to the temptation of greed. You see, the Bible is clear that we can't pass the buck. Turn in your Bibles for a moment, just for a second. Keep your finger in James chapter 1. Turn to the book of Genesis for a moment. If you don't know where the book of Genesis start at the beginning, you're going to page 3. Okay? Page 3 of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Story that many of us know, even in part, whether we've been a part of the church or not, it's the beginning of time, the beginning of creation. And God has set a man and a woman in creation to have dominion over the Garden of Eden. And he's given a rule. And they're to stay away. 
and, and not partake of the fruit from this tree that's in the middle of the garden. And we know from Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 that the devil comes in the form of a serpent and he begins to conjure and entice the woman Eve into thinking that if she eats of the fruit, she can become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. There's a truth and half-truth, if you will, um, in that. That the temptation had some truth to it, but it doesn't show, if you will, the hook. And of course, then, she takes a fruit and she eats it against the commands of God. And then she hands it to her husband, and her husband knows that he hasn't been deceived, but he, he has been told, man, i got to make a choice. Do I make a choice for my God? Do I make a choice with the woman that's with me? I'm going to rebel against God. I like this woman too much. I don't want to ruin this thing. I'm going to stick with my lady. And he eats of the fruits. And God comes walking around in the garden. All of this is recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And so we get to verse 11 of Genesis chapter 3. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Because they've run for their lives. They're scared. They're filled with shame. They know they're guilty. And they go to try to cover themselves. And God says, how did you know you were naked? Why did you hide yourself? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. This is the first time of a million times that the husband blames the wife. Okay? He says, think about this, God, you and I, remember the days before you created Eve? We had something great going on. We walked and we talked and and we were compadres. Things were going good. And then you brought in that woman. And she messed everything up. It's her fault. But notice in the text, he doesn't just blame the woman. Whom else does he blame? God. The woman you gave me. So he's deflecting. Hey, it's not my fault. I was just here hanging out. I was doing what I was supposed to do. She got me in trouble. And really, it's your fault, God, because you're the one that created her. And so it's really on you. So stop coming down on me because I'm innocent. Now notice what happens. He turns to the woman. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman's like, Hey, sounds like a good argument from Adam. I'll go with it. God's taken. I'm taken. Can't go there. The devil made me do it. Notice the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's the devil's fault. I want you to know, and if you write down, you use your Bible as a textbook and take notes like that, write down, there's no mention of the devil in this passage on temptations. Nothing. James doesn't want us to think that we should blame God for our temptations, nor should we blame uh, the devil. And so we've got to be careful that we don't pass the buck. You see, where we've got to look, if we want to find victories, we've got to look inward. We've got to look at our desires. Turn back to the book of James, because Genesis doesn't help us. It shows us three ways that we shouldn't pass the buck. We shouldn't blame God, we shouldn't blame our spouse, and we shouldn't blame the devil. And James says, instead of blaming any of those three people, we got to look within because we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. Now, on the devil, real quick, I know there was a lot of discussion in our small groups. We had great discussion on the role of the devil. And there was some real question of how, how much can the devil have his involvement in it. And I want you to know, be careful you don't give the devil more credit for your temptations than you should. Because here's the thing that we know from Scripture. While the devil uses temptations as a weapon against us, the devil simply knows we are hungry and sets up places where we can eat food that go against the will of God. And what I mean by that is we're on a journey. So take it you're on the interstate, okay? And the interstate is the pathway of which we're going to get to God's glory, God's goodness in our lives. And God has said, listen... I want you to know you're going to get on Interstate 80, and at mile marker 150, there is where I'm going to supply you food. Here's my command. The devil is going to set up a whole lot of food all along the way. 
I don't want you to stop until mile marker 150. And so you're driving. And you're going along and everything's fine until you pass the first Burger King. And you start smelling it. And remember, the devil does what the IDOT does, right? They start telling you where you can get food on the way, right? In three miles, you can stop Wendy's, A&W, uh, uh, Olive Garden, all the manner of things. And, and you're driving, and you're just like, hmm. And then all kinds of uh, ads are up. Beautiful ads of food. i got to stop there. In just two miles, your belly can be filled. And you have a decision to make. Will I stay true and wait for mile marker 150 where God has promised me that I will be taken care of? Or will I seek to get that taken care of on our own? The question is, will you be able to keep your hungers at bay until then? Here's what the devil can't do. The devil can't force you into it. The devil can't push you into it. The devil can't grab your hand and, and, and pull you into it. The devil can't make you do it. He can't prod you. He can't do anything. The only thing that the devil can do is set traps along the way. That's it. All he can do is entice you. And he'll do a good job. He'll do it with picture. He'll do it with smells. He'll do it with, with showing you everybody else who's stopping. So you're like, I gotta wait till mile marker 150. And at mile marker 78, you see the all eat you can buffet and it's packed full with people. And you watch and as they're walking out and they're smiling and woohoo, that was great. And mmm, it's so good. And you're dying inside because that's all you want. The question is, are you gonna let desires get a handle of you or will you get a handle on your desires so we've got to unmask the real enemy we got to take that mask off and the real enemy is ourselves it's us we're the problem we're the problem we're the issue the onus is on us as Tr- president truman said the buck stops here it's our desire now you say okay well what's this desire this desire is a hunger, it's an appetite, it's a, it's a longing that, listen, this is very important, that God has put in you. Your longings, your desires, your hungers are not bad. They're not the problem. The problem is, is how am I going to fulfill this long list of hungers and desires? And am I going to fulfill it God's way, or will I fulfill it my way? These are immune from sin, if you will, in and of themselves. God created them. We're going to learn that God gives us every good and perfect gift. Our hunger is a good hunger. We're sexual beings. God's given us a hunger for, for the issue of sexuality. But God says, are you going to do it my way or are you going to do it your way? Will you follow my time frame and my place in marriage for it? Or will you do it in your time frame and place? It's not the hunger that's the problem. It's our unwillingness or disobedience or our willingness to obey that is causing the consternation. And so we've got to figure it out. And we've got to unmask it. But here's the thing I want you to remember. There can be victory. Don't ever forget it. Some of you are so broken up over your temptation and you've given in for so long that you feel like it is a giant that will never be slayed. And here's what we know. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Greater is Jesus in us than the temptations that wage war inside of us. And when we allow Jesus to have his role and his place in our lives, we will start to minimize some of the, the, the greatness of the temptations that are from within. And we've got to start working through those. And we've got to unmask the enemy, knowing that Jesus, when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4 by the devil himself, he did not use some superhuman strength, right? Jesus, on three occasions, after fasting for 40 days, being utterly exhausted in the wilderness, on three occasions, uses the Word of God, the same weapon that he calls us to use. Three times he says, it is written, it is written, it is written, quoting from the Old Testament to combat the temptations that the devil was throwing his way. And we can find victory as well. But the question is, will we do it? Well, we've got to understand the steps that come. I won't take a long time in this. I want to land this plane here quickly. But verse 15, how does temptation come about? 
Notice each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What are the steps of temptation? After articulating that we are our own worst enemy, responsible for where temptation comes from and where it will take us, we need to ask the question, how does it take form in our lives? First of all, write the word down, enticement. It begins with an enticement by our own desires, these God-given desires. These desires that have a proper place and must be spirit-controlled. And yet we find ourselves straying away from it. When, when I was a kid, instead of playing video games, we played something called tag. Some of you may have heard it before. Okay? And in tag, someone was always it. They were the bad guy. And you would run around keeping yourself away from that person. But here was the provision that was given. Okay? Everybody over 40 knows this. Okay? Under 30, they don't know what I'm talking about. Okay? In tag... You stayed away from the bad guy, but you knew that you just weren't in no man's land, that you were always given what? Help me out. Home base. Okay? And when you were on home base, you were safe. When you were on home base, you could be at ease. As long as you were touching home base, you could stand with confidence and say, Nana na boo boo, you can't get me. Okay? Here's the problem. The devil longs for us to wander from home base. The devil lures us with enticing things to get us off of home base. Here's why. As long as we've got a hand on home base, he can't touch us. The second we're off home base, we're open season. And so he's enticing us. He's doing everything in his power to get you. And he is masterful at that. He doesn't have to grab you and pull you off. He says, listen, I don't have to touch you. All I got to do is put enough stuff around you that elicits uh, those feelings and desires that you'll want it enough that you'll let go of home base and you'll be, have an opportunity, or he'll have an opportunity to tag you out. Here's the thing. Home base is the word of God. And you have the, you have the opportunity God has given it. Jesus showed us how to use it in the way of temptation. And, and when we pick up this word, it doesn't mean that we are in, in, immune from temptations. What it means is when we dedicate, how can a young man keep his way pure? By meditating and memorizing the word of God. And this is home base. And for some of you right now, you're dealing with temptation and saying, Tim, uh, God's not strong enough and all that, but hogwash. You're not in the word. You're not connected to home base, and so you're open season for the devil right now, and he's tagging you out at every time. Every time the game gets started again, he's like, <laughs> gotcha, out. And the problem is, is you haven't gotten filled in that those enticements are leading you away from safety and causing you to be vulnerable to the devil's attacks. Enticement, step two, entrapment. Well, how's he going to do it? Well, he's going to entice you. Hey, hey, look at this wonderful thing over here. Look at how pleasurable this thing is over here. And you don't have to wait, and you don't have to be married, or, or you don't have to uh, keep a tight rein on your tongue. Just do it. It feels so good. It's so freeing. And what you see is the freedom, but what you don't see is the strings that are attached to it. The phrase enticed and lured are two terms in the first century that were used for outdoorsmen. The first one, lured, was the picture of a fisherman. The idea was a fisherman did what he could to attract fish to come into the net. So what are we going to do to attract the fish to come into the net? Because it's hard enough to grab fish when they don't want to come. So let's find a way for them to come. And if we can, if they come to us, then we can snag them up real easy. So fishermen, of course, we know of lures. They're beautiful, shiny uh, things that attract fish. Little do the fish know, though, that there's a hook. The same picture is given of a trap that is set to capture wild game. Back in the day, they had things that would trap an animal. And it would be something that would be appealing to the animal. And they would set the trap so that the animal saw what was appealing but didn't see the the iron claws of the trap that would take the animal hostage. 
And so what has happened is, is there's an enticing, hey, your own desires, you got to get this. And then, okay, we set the trap. I want you to know at this point, listen, in step one and step two in your outline, write that these two do not constitute sin. Because these two things Jesus endured. Jesus had hungers. Jesus had desires that were from God, that were a part of his human nature. And then he was entrapped with them. The devil set traps for him. Hey, if you do this, then you can have this. If you want this, then do that. And traps were set. And Jesus did not fall into the traps. And so right now, you may find yourself being enticed. You're not sinning. You may find yourself with traps all around you, but you're staying away from them. Listen, you're not sinning at that point. You shouldn't have a guilty conscience there. But I want to warn you, that's a slippery slope. Because you can fall really quickly. It takes but a moment for those claws to grab a hold of you. So when does it become sin? Verse 15, what I would like to call endorsement. Endorsement. I like that word endorsement, and here's why. Because we just got done with a political campaign, and then political endorsements were going on. What was a political endorsement? One person standing next to another person and say, I like this guy, or I like this girl, right? I, I think they're important. I think they're smart. I think they're wise. I want to follow this person. And they would give their endorsement. When temptation becomes sin is when you grab your temptation, whatever it is, you put your arm around and say, I like this. This is good. We need more of this in our lives. I want this thing to lead me. I want this thing to guide me. I want this thing to take me where it says it's going to go. Remember, political people, listen to me. You follow me and good things will happen. What temptation says, and please don't take this in a political way, let's make sin great again. Right? Let's have fun. And we put our arm around it and we say, you betcha. I'm with you. When you do that with your temptation, you have gone from a place of purity to a place of sin. Now you say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I haven't even done anything yet. The Bible makes it clear, Jesus makes it clear, that we don't have to, in the area of lust, do something physical for us to be sinful. It is the endorsement of the heart. It's the lingering of the heart that gets us into trouble. And some of us right now are in the endorsement phase, and you're looking at the people on the other side of the entrapment where I'm going here in a moment, and you're saying, you sinner. Oh, they're sinners. You've got it right. You're a truth teller. But here's the problem. While they are sinning, physically or outwardly yeah they're caught they're they're what i like to call romans one sinners you can study romans one you'll see that they're romans one sinners and and then romans two comes and those inward sinners those ones that don't do it physically but do it internally they're the ones that have never lifted a hand in someone in sinful anger but they sure feel it and they sure call it out so nobody can hear it right they're saying it inside i hate that person i want that person to die they maybe have never committed adultery in a physical sense but they've dreamed and fantasized about all kinds of crazy things on the inside and romans 2 people say you're the bad one i'm okay And the Bible says when we get to the endorsement phase of our temptation, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. And so then what comes is after endorsement, you've got um, enslavement. Now notice something. James uses the metaphor of conception and birth. And I want to remind you that... For conception to take place, biology tells us that two things have to be brought together for a third to become a reality. So the thing that happens here, the two things that are brought together are our desires and the temptation. When we take the desires and our temptation and we bring them together, a third thing results and that third thing is sin. Okay? And and here's the problem. You say, well listen Tim, I've allowed my temptation to have the best of me, and I'm here all the time. 
and nothing's happened. I'm not feeling anything. It's all good. Here's the problem. We know, or we know that we don't know when the moment of conception takes place. Right? That's done in the secret will and plan of God. But at some point, that conception becomes public, right? It starts becoming evident. And some of you right now are in the conception process of your sin. It's sin, but you haven't, listen, you ain't having morning sickness yet. Your body's not changing yet. There's a period of time from conception to the first signs that something's wrong. Usually about 30 days if I got my biology right. That you really start figuring things out. And then as it continues to go, the evidence of it becomes becomes more and more apparent. Okay? Everybody can see it. And listen, some of us right now, we are in the secret chamber of our temptation and sin. Nobody knows about it, and we're loving it. It's great. It's quiet. It's done behind closed doors. It's done within our heart. And the problem is God knows it, but we don't want to think about that because we're too busy blaming him. And so what's happening is we're living in that conception time. But listen, at some point, unknown to us, it starts to become more and more evident to all. And you allow it to happen, and you allow it to go on, and at some point, it becomes so evident that you can't hide it anymore. I can't tell you how many times I've read or seen with my own eyes good men, great men of the faith who have pastored wonderful churches and been models of great uh, pictures of righteousness only to find out for years they had temptations that they thought they could keep at bay, that they had sins that they thought they could keep in their closet. And then little by little it came out until it became so public they had to give everything up. And that happens. I told my small group with almost tears in my eyes how broken I am that usually when I get involved or the elders get involved in in, in the issue of sin in our people's lives, it's too late. Now we could have helped you in the temptation phase, but now that it's out that you've done X, Y, and Z, now your life has fallen apart and you've come because you're like, man, it's out of control. I need help from somebody. And the pastor say, we can pray for you and we can give you some counsel, but the damage is already done. The toothpaste is out of the tube. You can't put it back in. And so I I told my, my small group, and I tell you today, before it's too late, get help. When you're in the enticement and entrapment thing, before you endorse that thing, get help. Say, I'm losing the battle. I'm struggling with this temptation. What can I do? Because when enslavement happens, notice when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. The wage of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And we've all, we've all died because of sin. We are spiritually separated from our God. Get a hold of it. These aren't words I just preach to you. I'm preaching to myself in this. Tim, get a hold of these things before they get a hold on you. How many of us could stand and give reports on how our temptations got away from us and caused us great harm and struggle and broken fellowship with our God, with our fellow friends and human beings, and the angst it brought to our own lives. Get a handle of it through the power of the Holy Spirit before it's too late. How do you do that? Here's the solution, and I'll close. Verses 16 and 17 help us with the solution. Number one, the first step to uh, temptation being uh, dealt with in a proper way is that we are grateful for God's bounty. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, verse 17 says, coming down from our Father, where there's no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. What he does is he gives. And he gives and he gives. In fact, we are given salvation. We weren't even looking for it. We needed it. But by his own will, verse 18, he brought us by the scriptures, the word of truth, new life. So that we might be an example. And so here's this great and giving God. And here's the struggle that you've got to work through and address. The reason why you and I struggle with sin is because we are ungrateful for the things that God has given us. It's really not hard to cheat with junk food 
when you've just enjoyed an incredibly awesome meal, right? You're not tempted. You're full. And you've filled with good stuff. Here's the problem. You'll cheat on your diet when you're starving. You'll see all this manner of garbage when you're hungry. Grocery stores tell us that if you enter into a grocery store, you will buy all the bad stuff before you ever buy the good stuff. And the reason why is you have impulses, you have desires, so they want you to come in hungry. Let me tell you, you want to save money? Go to the grocery store after you've had a big meal. You'll get the right things. Because when you're hungry, when you're longing for something, you'll eat anything to relieve the cravings. God says, I've given you every good and every perfect gift. I've given it from heaven itself. I've given it for your good. Fill yourself on those things because when you do, that's half the battle. The half the battle is there. It's no reason that the moment that Jesus was fasting that the devil came, right? He knew he was hungry. He knew he was weak. He knew he was longing for things. And the devil strikes. So we've got to be filled with God's good things. We've got to be eating up the bounty of all the good things God gives us. Number two, we've got to be guided with his battle plan. I want to close with this and I'll move quickly. And I've just written down some things. And hopefully you've got some space in your outlines. Write these five things down that I believe Scripture tells us to do. And then I'm going to read some Scripture and we're going to close. If you're struggling with temptation, the first thing you need to do is to fight. Fight. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brothers in the world. That's 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's Ephesians 6.1. You need to fight. You need to follow. James 4, 7 and 8, therefore submit to God, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's James 4, 7 and 8. 1 Peter 2.21, for this you were called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Who are you to follow? The example of Jesus Christ. Fight, follow, flee. There are some sins you don't hang around and try to grapple with. You just run. 1 Corinthians 10.14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10.14. 2 Timothy 2.22, that's 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. Uh, Romans 13.14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That's Romans 13.14. And the one we learned here not too long ago, Genesis 32.12, when tempted by Potiphar's wife, Joseph left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. That's Genesis 39, 12. You fight, you follow, you flee. You find a friend. Find a friend. Second Timothy 2.22. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord. First Corinthians 15, I'm sorry, uh, Proverbs 13.20. Proverbs 13.20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Proverbs 13.20. First Corinthians 15.33. Evil company corrupts good character. First Corinthians 15.33. We fight, we follow Jesus, we flee when we need to, and we find a friend who will hold us accountable, who is trusted to carry our burdens. And we feed. We feed. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.11 Christ himself defeated the devil when tempted by quoting the Old Testament, starting with replies, it is written, it is written, it is written. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. What's the solution? We fight. We follow God in the person of Jesus Christ. We flee when it comes to certain levels of immorality and idolatry. We find a friend who will help us, and we feed upon the Word of God, which is the Word of truth. When we do that, you and I will be more prepared for the fight. 
We'll be ready when the enemy comes our way because we've acknowledged our temptation, we've identified it, we've addressed it, and now we're ready to resist it. Now comes the hard stuff. Now we have to go into this world where the devil has all kinds of temptation before us. And we are called, as we are each and every week, to go and to live like Christ, saying no to sin and ungodly lust, and to follow him. And let me tell you what James says. When we do that, we will receive the good and perfect gifts that only God can give. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you for your word. Thank you for what it does in our lives. And I thank you for this warning shot to us, reminding us of the roles that temptation plays in our lives. Lord, thank you for identifying those temptations, showing us the difference between temptation and sin, but recognizing the steps that uh, cause us to move from temptation into sin. Lord, I pray for my beloved brothers and sisters that you would in instill with them your wisdom and your truth to know where they struggle, to identify that God so that they can be equal to the task. But Lord, I pray that they would not try to do this on their own. Lord, remind them and remind myself today that we need Jesus. We need you each and every hour. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. Lord, I hope and pray that there will be some withdrawals this week. That people were saying no to sin and no to temptation and finding victory in Christ Jesus. It's because we know that Jesus was able to do it and to do it without sin that we look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Guide us, lead us, teach us, train us. Empower us with your spirit so we can live like your son. Now send us forth now, Lord, as we talk about opportunities we have in ministries and and ways that we can serve this church and send us forth in a world of temptations to do your will and live according to your word, we ask. In Christ's name we pray, amen.